Luke chapter 24. We're going to read in verse 36, and we'll read, go ahead and read through the end of the chapter. Though our attention will, will be through verse 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of My Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then He led them out as far as Bethany, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The image we have as we meet the disciples here at the beginning of this passage is different than what we find at the end of the passage, isn't it? We find them, the, the image of them at the beginning, it's quite telling. They, the, the 11 here, the, which is the 12 minus 1 minus Judas, the betrayer, and really, probably as the story begins here, it's, it's 10. It would be 11 minus uh, Thomas, who comes in later, John's account. But they're huddled together. They're hiding behind locked doors. They, they, they're secluded. They're, Silently grieving in this, in this, uh, in the, in kind of the safety of their own little rented quarters up there in that upper room and just sort of hanging out, hanging on, just not sure what they should be doing and what happens next. And so, but, but, so that's kind of the beginning. But by the end of this section, as we see, as we read through it just now, their fear is turned into courage. Their, their confusion is translated into this deep abiding conviction. Their, their troubled hearts become filled with joy, worship. They're, they're, they're wallowing in their self-pity and their dis, dis, uh, disappointment and their despondency. It gives way to, to this worship and bold witness. So that's an incredible transformation in the few verses that we just read here. Now I can't help but see some kind of comparison to how... Many Christians live today, and, uh, and many of us, if we're honest, at times, and, and, and how those frightened, doubting disciples were hiding out at the beginning of this passage. We can live with the same kind of, we call it, fortress mentality. We can, we can hide in fear rather than moving out in courage. 
We can see ourselves as sort of helpless victims of a hostile culture and, and, and enemy forces rather than as cross-bearing servants of the risen King. We can be more concerned about just keeping it together and staying safe than reaching out to the lost in, in our world through the Gospel. We can spend all of our energy and, and effort trying to keep the world out rather than penetrating it with the good news of Jesus Christ. Can, in, the, in the name of being set apart for the Lord, we can become preoccupied with ourselves, really, and our families, and, and our comfort, and our safety, and our way of life. We are, we are not so unlike the disciples that we meet here at the beginning of this scene, in the time of doubting and fear. But this, is, this isn't a hopeless or some kind of incurable malady that they face or that we face. These troubled and these doubting and hiding disciples, they're transformed as we've seen. They're changed into these men and women of, of tremendous joy and, and courage and worship and witness here. And so the, the cure though, I would just say to us, it's just as available, it's just as applicable to us today, 2,000 years later as it was then. And so we sang just a little bit ago, the lift up your heads and and look and see our God and the celebrate the power of the cross and the empty tomb. And, and this is this is what transformed these folks. And so this morning, I just we, we want to see uh, what transformed these basically invisible disciples of Jesus and, and transformed into this invincible force that, that that the Lord used to turn the world upside down, as we read next. And so we need to be. We need to be gripped by what gripped them. And so there's four kind of points that we'll, we'll, we'll come to as we walk through this passage together. We need to be gripped by the reality, reality of the resurrection, the necessity of the cross, the urgency of the task, and the supply of the Spirit. And so let's just see those together. And, 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 I, and my prayer this week is, and, and even this morning is just that that, they, that this, the way that those realities gripped them, they would grip us today. And so... First, may we be gripped by the reality of the resurrection. So verse 36, look there again with me. It begins, as they were talking about these things. Now, this is pointing back to something, and we were there last week. And so the, this is pointing back to what we saw last week. So last week, you remember, we, we saw Jesus join these two uh, downcast disciples of His as they walked on this road back to Jerusalem. And so these despondent Jesus followers, they, they're probably going back home, making that uh, roughly seven-mile journey to the little village of Emmaus um, and, and going home. And so then, as they're going along, you remember, Jesus joined them. They don't recognize Him. They were kept from recognizing Him, but He joined them. And, and He got them talking by asking them a question. And as they, as, as they started pouring out their hearts to Him, they're, they're saying to this, you know, this stranger to them, and they're, they're telling him about all how all of their hopes have been completely dashed when Jesus, the one that they had hoped would redeem Israel, had just been tragically crucified. And so they're lamenting this and they're sad and they can hardly take put one foot in front of the other as they tell Jesus these things. And so Jesus still unrecognized them as He continued to walk with them. He, he walked them through the Scriptures. We saw this and he explained how all of the law and the prophets pointed to him and, 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 and particularly pointed to the, the humiliation of the Messiah and the suffering of the Messiah that must precede his exaltation, his glorification. 
And so after they arrived in Emmaus, remember, late that Sunday evening, the two disciples asked the stranger to stay with them and to eat with him. And Jesus took them up on their offer. And as he sat down with them in their home, the text says that Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And when he did that, their eyes were suddenly opened and they recognized Jesus for who he is. They connected the dots by the Spirit's help. And then what happened? He vanished. He was gone. And so the two disciples, you remember, they immediately got up from the table and they rushed back to Jerusalem. They, they made that seven-mile seven journey at night with all of the risk that were there. And they just couldn't wait until morning to get to the other disciples and tell them what, what they had seen, what they had experienced, to tell the others that Christ has indeed risen from the dead. And this is, this is what they bust in the door saying. They're saying, the Lord has risen indeed. He, he's risen. And it's in that context that we pick up this story. And so we get to verse 36 again. As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them. I know we, we're familiar with this, but this is incredible. So as these two disciples are recounting this incredible experience they've had with Jesus on the road and, and at the table, and, and as all this lively conversation, no doubt, is going on with the other disciples, they're asking questions and they're sharing the little bits they've heard and these angelic appearances and and, the, and these, these, these rumblings of resurrection. And so what happens? Jesus does it again. He just appears out of nowhere. And we're told in John chapter 20, verse 19, that, that they're gathered, and John's very explicit, they're behind a locked door. He, so he didn't sneak in. So I can imagine these amassed disciples, and they're thinking, see, told you so. Like, he can do it. <laughs> this is what happened. And, 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 and so th then what is Jesus' first word to his followers? <laughs> what do you think it... What do you think it would be? What do you think it should be? I mean, remember, collectively, this, these are the people who've betrayed Jesus, who've denied Him, who've abandoned Him, who've disbelieved Him in His darkest hour. What's He going to say to them? Is, is He going to recount and, and give every excruciating detail of the doubts in their hearts? Because He knows them. Is he going to walk through every word of denial that Peter spoke? Is he going to recount every failure? Is he going to say, I told you so, but no, you wouldn't listen to me. What's he going to say to them? I had one of my less than many, but one of my less than stellar moments uh, from childhood is a time when I intentionally broke my next door neighbor's Christmas lights. Um, don't throw stones. You, you've done dumb things too. Rob, especially. I hear you laughing. <laughs> I've heard some of your stories. No. No, I was with a kid that lived down the street. It's probably like four or five years old, and they, they had this little brick kind of bed, you know, wall that was real low wall, and they had these little, the little small lights that were lining the lining that brick wall and I don't know why we had no reason uh, what motivated us but we just thought it sounded really cool when those little things busted and so we were just going along kicking them and, and breaking these lights and of course we weren't very discreet about it and our neighbor caught us and and he told me to go tell my dad what I had done <laughs> my dad was actually on the ladder putting up Christmas lights on our house um, that was an awful walk across that yard and I was, I was a, I was already teary. I know when I, just, just, just dreading that first encounter 
with my dad and, and after doing something that was so wrong. I think about that and I wonder what the disciples thought Jesus would say to them the first time He saw them after their utter failure during His sufferings and death. And what's His first word to them? Peace. Peace. That wasn't my dad's first word to me. <laughs> uh, peace to you. Shalom Ka. Hebrew. It means something like, may, may the favor of my Father that gives you total well-being be with you. You know, there's a wonderful word of comfort here for us, isn't there? I mean, the Lord knows our sins. He knows our sins better than we know our sins. We think we know how bad we are. The Lord knows we're far worse than we even realize. And yet, He is still loving and forgiving towards us because of Christ. Peace. This is a huge word in the New Testament. And it takes on fuller meaning after the cross and the empty tomb. But there's also a word for us in how we deal with others. How, how could we who are followers of this kind of Savior, how, how could disciples of, of this kind of forgiving Lord store up bitterness in our hearts and, and, and refuse to forgive others who sin against us? What, what God has forgiven us, listen, is always greater than what we need to forgive others. Should we not have hearts transformed by the Savior, patterned after Jesus Christ here who said, peace to you, to these fumbling, bumbling, stumbling, doubting, disloyal disciples. He speaks peace to sinners. That's good news to us. And that's, that's, a, that's an encouragement, an exhortation to us that, to the forgiven sinners that we are to be forgiving. And so... All right, that's sort of off the side, bro. But back to the main rule. The disciples here, they're talking together. They're talking with one another. Jesus appears. He speaks peace. And the disciples are incredulous. Look what he says. Jesus says, peace to you. But peace isn't what it wasn't the mood in the room. But they were startled and frightened. They were scared out of their wits. And they thought they saw a spirit, a ghost. I do my Scooby-Doo impression here, but I, I won't. The, the disciples, they're totally caught off guard by Jesus here. They, they didn't expect to see Him. He's dead. He's been dead. There, there's no mistaking it. They know this, but now He's standing there among them. Yes, they had heard these kind of rumors and these they're trying to put this together. Maybe He's risen. He said that, but, but literally, bodily, physically, the same one? No way. They're doubting this. And, and then He just appears out of nowhere. So they thought he must be some kind of spirit of some, some kind. Normal bodies don't enter through locked rooms, locked doors. The ghost explanation made the most sense to them. And so, I mean, listen, modern skeptics aren't the first ones to have trouble believing in the literal bodily resurrection uh, 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 that, a, that a body can rise from the dead. No, these, the, these disciples doubted. They're, they're eyewitnesses and they doubted. And so he said to them, verse 38, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? He recognizes they're struggling to believe and, and to make sense of what they're seeing. And notice what he does. He graciously condescends to meet their needs. He's so kind. 
He doesn't berate them, but He graciously provides them all these evidences of, of His bodily resurrection. And so notice how unambiguous Luke is in recording this. He has all the physical details that he includes that, that, are, that are here in this story. He's making it very clear that Jesus' resurrection is real. It's, it's physical. Look what Jesus provides for them. He's, one, He's just standing before them. He's there. He's, he doesn't you know, give them some little vague representation of Him in the clouds or on a piece of toast or something like that. His outline or some you know, cryptic message scrawled on the back of the door. You know, hey, just, you know, I'm risen. Or even an angelic appearance. That's not, that's not, he's standing right in front of them. His body. And he encouraged them, second, to, to look at his hands and feet, these scars that remain even on his resurrection body, we're told in John 20. Third, he encouraged them to touch him. Verse 39, touch me and see. For, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I'm, I'm just, I'm a body, I'm real. And even after all that evidence, what does Luke say? The disciples still, I love how he says, they disbelieved for joy. Disbelieved for joy and were marveling. They're so happy, but they can hardly believe it. It's too good to be true, we could say. But their hearts, they're, they're beginning to lighten. There's joy now mixed in. And it's at that point Jesus says to them, you have anything here I can eat? And what do they do? They bring him a piece of broiled fish. I love fish, and and especially cooked fish. And and he eats it, and he eats it right there in front of them. I, I again, I, I'm not trying to make much of this, but it's not just like a, a morsel of a bread or something like that. A fish, it's 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 fragrant, it's it's messy. He's eating with his hands. It's just, it's different. It's a, it's a full sensory kind of experience. I, I, I just keep that in mind. As, but, he, but this is it. He eats. Ghosts don't eat fish. And so that, that's, okay, why are we in this? That's the meal this week. That's it. I mean, it's not like some of these other meals where we have this banquet and sitting down and enjoying and all this stuff is happening around the table. That's why we're in this passage in, in this summer series because of this quote, meal. It's just this little morsel of food that Jesus has given and He eats it in front of His disciples. But it's hugely significant. That's why Luke's recorded it for us. Uh, if I could think, and I'm going to risk embarrassing a, a daughter on the front row here, but um, I remember when Katie had her brain surgery and, and was recovering in the hospital and from that you know, major surgery and, and the difficulty of seeing her in that condition, and, and when she ate a few bites of food, I just remember how monumental that was to us. I mean, it, it wasn't the quantity of the food. It certainly wasn't the quality of the food, that hospital food, you know, a, a little oatmeal or a little tiny little spoonful of applesauce or, or whatever they would try to give her. That's not what made the meal significant. But those tiny little bites of those few little morsels of food they were significant because of what they pointed to recovery recovery we've we've turned a corner it meant so much to us so so were Christ's bites of that broiled fish it's not it's not a big elaborate meal 
But what it's pointing to, what it's communicating there, it's pointing to something world-changing. Resurrection. Resurrection. I mean, this is another example, though. We've talked about these meals or these, or these moments of enacted grace. And, and so we have here. This is Jesus graciously condescending to His disciples in their moment of need. As they're doubting, as they're troubled, as they're disbelieving. Here's Jesus they're struggling to believe, and here's Jesus attesting to himself, to of himself to these doubting disciples. He's not a, he's not asking his disciples to believe in contradiction to reality or to their senses to live in denial of of reality. No, Jesus is so kind, and and he's saying, "I'm real." That's what this meal is communicating. I'm, 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 I'm asking you to believe because I'm here. I have a resurrected body. I'm standing right in front of you. I'm eating in front of you. Believe in me. No spiritual resurrection. No metaphorical resurrection. The body that had been dead is now raised and transformed and is now a little hungry. Or whether the resurrection body needs food to survive, it can certainly assimilate food into it and will enjoy food. So there, listen, we talked a little bit about this last week, but I want to elaborate a little more and make a connection for us today. And so as we see in Jesus' body, there are are some continuities and there are some discontinuities between his pre- and post-resurrection bodies. I mean, they could they could see the scars. They could they could even touch them. They they could you know recognize him uh, most of the time, and so there's continuity. But but his body it's not restricted to time and space like ours is. It seems and, and locked doors as we see can't keep him out, and he can vanish from the table with these men. And and at other times people don't recognize him right away. So there may be some you know as the as the effects of the curse are rolled back there. There's probably physical changes. And obviously, the last time they've seen him, he was crucified and all of that. And many of that's probably cleaned up. And so he looks different. So, but we, we get some help. We, we, can't, we don't know exactly how this is all sorted out, but we, we get some help with these similarities and dissimilarities as we look to 1 Corinthians 15. And I don't know we were there not that long ago as a church, but remember in that chapter, Paul's kind of struggling to, struggling for the language to, 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 explain this reality and he does so by explaining it like a seed planted in the ground that springs up as our bodies go into the earth they're buried and then they'll one day be raised and so there's this continuity between the seed and the plant if you plant a cucumber seed you get a cucumber plant so there's continuity but they're not exactly the same and so we read and just listen first Corinthians 15 verse 42 so so it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown is perishable what is raised is imperishable it's sown in dishonor it's raised in glory it's sown in weakness it's raised in power it's sown a natural body it's raised a spiritual body and if there is a natural body there is also a spiritual body there's similarities and there's differences and and this is what Jesus's followers encountered during those 40 days after his resurrection before his ascension they, 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 these encounters they shook them this was, this was a cataclysmic experience for them to encounter the risen Christ. It challenged all of their notions, it, uh, it, preconceived notions. It changed the whole course of their lives, what they encounter when they encounter the risen Christ. Now, what does this mean for you and me? Well, it means 
everything. I mean, his, his physical rec- resurrection, though, it, it was good for him. He rose from the dead. But listen, unless we have some connection to him, then the historicity of it doesn't really matter that much. You see what I'm saying? That, that there, there's, this is where some of our apolog- apologetic attempts to demonstrate the, the proof of, of physical re- resurrection sometimes fall short. Because even with all the evidence in the world of the empty tomb, and there's enormous evidence of the reality of this, the benefit of Jesus' resurrection for anyone besides himself is is still a matter of faith. In other words, without the promise of the gospel, it's simply news. It's incredible news, mind you. But it becomes good news for us when we see our connection to Jesus and his resurrection. And connected we are, dear brothers and sisters. We've been singing this this morning. Dear Christian, it's, it's Jesus' death and His resurrection that accomplished our salvation and opened the way for us to have life in Christ. And we could spend the rest of the morning talking about that and unpacking that, and we talk about that often. But in particular, I want you to remember this today, that Jesus' physical resurrection, it's only the beginning. We also share the future hope of resurrection bodies because of Christ. This is Christianity 101. When we did, we walked through the Apostles' Creed together uh, uh, some time ago and preached through that time. And this is this is part of this is just Orthodox Christianity. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Throughout the Scriptures, we read Jesus is the first to be raised. First Corinthians 15:20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That euphemism for death. Colossians 1.18, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Acts 26.23, Christ must suffer, and, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So after Him will rise all who die in Him. 1 Corinthians 15.23, Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. In other words, this is what we're saying. Christ physical resurrection which he's going to deep great pangs to communicate and to show evidence of in his grace it is it it signals it guarantees our own remember when we were talking first corinthians 15 i know you remember every sermon i preach and every illustration i use but remember you talk about the train and so all the cars on a uh, train cars are connected by those couplings to to that engine and that's what we're saying here. The, the only chance the train cars make it to the destination, they have no power in themselves, but the only hope that they have is that they're ultimately joined to the engine, those couplings. And so wherever the engine goes, the train follows behind. Christ is the engine. He's the first fruits. Where He has gone, we will go. We are joined to Jesus and He has been raised. Therefore, we must be raised. There's a certainty to it. There's an inevitability to it. Dear brother and sister, listen, since Christ is raised and you are in Him, your resurrection hope is secure. You know that. Your future is bright. Maybe maybe it doesn't feel that way right now. Maybe people that are here this morning are listening online and wishing they were here and and you're drowning in despair. Maybe you're just in debt and, and see no way out. Maybe you're so lonely. Maybe you're depressed. 
utterly despondent. Maybe you're grieving some enormous loss in your life. Maybe you're heartbroken or some fractured relationship. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're in physical pain. Maybe you're just overwhelmed by the stress of school and work and starting back. And maybe there's some relationship that's unreconciled. Whatever it is, it's easy to despair. It's easy to, it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to groan. I mean, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that all creation is groaning, waiting, or longing. It's, it's hard. There's difficulty. And, 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 it, and it's, we're, we're, we're waiting for... Um, uh, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Not just our souls, but our bodies. We're waiting. We're groaning. I just say to you, don't despair though. I'm not saying it's light and it's easy and just paste over a smile. No, but Christ arose and you are in Him. You will rise best is yet to come and that's guaranteed by virtue of the fact that we're joined to Christ I think about this as we've as after this more than a year now we've been facing our collective mortality as as people I mean this promise of physical resurrection is wonderful news isn't it in light of all that's going on our Christian hope it's it's not based upon you know inoculation or herd immunity that's not what we tie our hope to it's not subject to virus variants or the relative effectiveness of vaccines that we can thank God for and we should utilize good health care and you know, clean drinking water and vaccines, those, all those things. But our hope isn't rooted in them. What we, instead, we find hope and strength in this promise of our own physical resurrection. The redemption of our bodies. Furthermore, I would just say the, the more we cling to this promise and this certainty and, and this hope, the more the reality of the resurrection grips our lives, the more courageous we're freed up to live. If the pandemic doesn't get us, something is going to. I mean, really, and, and I don't say that at all to be cavalier. That is not it at all. And so please don't hear that. But to, but to be confident, to be caring towards others. The promise of the resurrection, it frees us to love and to serve people, to sacrifice ourselves, to put the physical needs of others ahead of our own. And, here, and this is my big point, the, the physical nature, and that's what Luke's really emphasizing here, the, the physical nature of Christ's resurrection, it should frame our hope of, of the future and certain promise of our own. And when that happens, our doubting, and our hiding, and our, and our dread, and our disbelief, it gives way to going, and proclaiming, and laboring, and sacrificing. It's a resurrection. It, it's gripped. It grips these. This is, this is what transforms them here. Now, we're spending most of our time on this first point because that's where the meal is. Um, but but let's see. So so resurrection isn't everything. It's not the only thing we see here. So Good Friday, it's not erased by after the resurrection. It's not forgotten. The cross. In fact, in light of the resurrection, the cross is seen for what it truly is. And it's it's that second emphasis here in the text. It's that second reality that's got to grip our lives. Not just the reality of the resurrection, but the necessity 
of the cross. And that's what, that's where he goes next. So we, we need to be gripped by, by the necessity of the cross. Look at verse 44. And he said to him, to, to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So he, he's not, he's not about to tell them anything new. He, he, he's, he's, he's telling them something that he's told them over and over and over during his three years with, with many of them. Particularly as the cross drew near, as you read these gospel accounts, this became the near constant refrain of Jesus as he talked with his disciples. He, he, and so he's saying to them here in this upper room, remember, remember what I said. This is what, this is the exact same thing the angel told the women when, we, when they were at the tomb and grieving. He said to them, remember, remember his words. Remember what he said to you. And so Jesus here, this is what I told you. Verse 44, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he's, he's taking the disciples again to the Scriptures. He's, he's helping them see in particular the, the promise of Jesus' suffering and His death and His resurrection. And, and this, is, this is what He did with the Emmaus disciples we saw last week, taking this tour of the Old Testament, showing, showing them and pointing, uh, showing Him and, and pointing to, in particular, how the Scriptures and the Law and the Prophets, they said the Messiah must suffer before He would be glorified. And the, the, the redemption they really needed was from sin. And, and that would be provided through the cross. And so Jesus says here, thus, thus, it, thus it is written. This is what the Scriptures testify to. I mean, we look in Genesis right away, right out of the gate, after the fall of, and after sinners enters into the picture. What do we find? The promise of a deliverer given by God. Who would, who would come, the seed of the woman, who would come and crush the head of the serpent and whose heel would be struck and, uh, strike by the serpent. So we know, we, we, we could go on and on. In particular, I think of, we, this is, when we look in the early church and when, when, the, when the early Christians are, are, are going to the Scriptures, which was, their, which was our Old Testament, this was their Bible, and they're going to explain the cross. They went to Isaiah 53, the same place we go. We were there last Sunday. We we read this together as a church, and so, but there's no question why they did this. I don't think I think that's exactly what Jesus is probably doing here, and he did with the Emmaus disciples. He's giving them this line of interpretation. And can you imagine again being there in that upper room? Jesus walks through Isaiah 53, points out what the what was promised, what the Messiah would endure, why he would do it the Lord's servant who would suffer not for his sins, but for the sins of the people. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, what? Peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's this exchange that Jesus no doubt highlighted with them that, that we are the ones who are guilty, yet we don't suffer for our sins. Instead, God lays our sins on the shoulders of his, of his servant and the servant suffers on our behalf. The result is forgiveness and healing for us and for all of God's people rather than suffering and judgment. 
So, and, and we see this in, in, in Luke's gospel account. Again, we've just been kind of jumping through here, but if we could go back and look at those passion narratives in Luke, you would see this emphasized in, in the way that Luke tells the story of the cross and what, what he's highlighting. He's the gospel writer among the others that, that tells us when the soldiers were crucifying Jesus, he said to them, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. Later on, we read the two robbers that were crucified with Jesus, one on each side of him, and, and, and the one mocks Jesus, the other rebukes his partner in crime, and he, and he says to them, this is how Luke records it, he basically, don't you know that we're just getting what we deserve? This man has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. He's not suffering for his wrongs. Then he turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replies, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Luke's not like we find in the epistles of the New Testament, giving us this you know, worked out um, theological theory of, of how the cross works, but he's making it clear here that it's at the cross. It's at the cross. It's the necessity of the cross. At the cross that we sinful human beings find forgiveness that we desperately need drilling it into us the necessity of his sufferings of the cross we are the guilty ones but God in his mercy came among us in the person of his son bore our guilt and shame so that we could receive forgiveness and healing and that's the message that has to be proclaimed and loud and clear to a to to the to a broken world just as we needed to hear it and we need still need to hear it, that people can come to the cross for themselves and find God's forgiveness it was, it was vital for these disciples gathered in that room to understand that what happened to Jesus, it wasn't an accident. So what he keeps doing, he going to the Scriptures saying, it had to be this way. He must suffer. He must die. The Messiah must suffer. Get that. It was part of his plan. It was so much part of his plan that he'd already written about it in his word. We need to be gripped by the absolute necessity of the cross if we're going to quit kind of hugging the balance beam of life and get up and walk courageously into the world. That leads us to the third thing Luke stresses for us, and I'll be quick. Not just the reality of the resurrection, not just the necessity of the cross, but we also need to be gripped by the urgency of the task. Look again, verse 46, where Jesus is speaking. He says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and then between verse 46 and 47, there's no disjunction there. There's conjunction. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now two of those three things have already happened at this point. As Jesus is saying this, Christ had been crucified. He had risen from the dead. What remains to be done? The proclamation of forgiveness of sins, of repentance in the name of Christ to the nations. So what does Jesus say to his disciples? You, you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. He's been, he's saying, I've been teaching you this all along. This is nothing more than the outflow of all that the Old Testament has been saying and as it's been pointing to me. It's nothing more than an outflow of all that was accomplished at the cross here and out of the empty tomb. Now, now you, you, you proclaim this message to the nations. You are my witnesses. 
It's not so much a command here as it is a certainty. It's a promise. This is what's, this is what's happening. The message of that, that message of the gospel that God's used to save them, save us, has been entrusted to us now. We're stewards of it. We're witnesses. We're what is a witness? It's a witness is vocal. A witness testifies to what he's seen, what he's heard, what he's experienced. And this is what we, what we, we're just saying this message. We're telling the truth about who Jesus is and what he, what he done, what he's done. Good grammar. He's, what he's done, what he's accomplished. We're proclaiming this message. It's a vocal one. It's not an optional activity for us. It is, it's just who we are. He doesn't just say, you're to be my witnesses. He says, you are my witnesses. This is what gives definition to your life now. Your, your life is, is constrained by the Great Commission. This is, how, this is Luke's version of the Great Commission here. Each gospel account has one. And this is what he's saying. This is who you are now. You are, you are my witness. Listen, it's our desire. It's, I know this is our, our elders' desire. And this is, this is many of us, we share this, that our whole congregation feel very personally invested. I don't mean individually, but, but personally invested and that we would find our joy together in, in responding with a resounding yes here. A resounding yes to this mandate that Jesus is giving His disciples. You are, you are my witnesses. Proclaim this message. There's a fourth emphasis and then we'll be done. And it's vital that we do, don't lose sight of this last one. So he stresses the reality of the resurrection, the necessity of the cross, the urgency of this task. And the fourth emphasis is that we need to be gripped by the supply of the Spirit. We need power. I mean, in order for the gospel to be proclaimed to every nation going out from Jerusalem, and, and, the, and, the, and the disciples, they must be given power. The promised power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that's going to turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. It's the only thing that's going to going to convict and convert in that, in that context some of the same ones who just a month earlier were calling for the Messiah to be executed. And many of them will become believers in Jesus. We, we, we need more than clever arguments. If clever arguments could make people Christians, then more clever arguments could unmake them. We need more than you know, well-crafted ministry plans. Now, all those things are fine, but they're not going to bring the dead to life. We need more than nice facilities and, and well-maintained buildings, and those things are great to have, but they don't change hearts. We, the, the struggle is spiritual, and therefore we need spiritual strength for it. And, this is, and so our passage ends in verse 49 where Jesus says, And behold, see... I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city. You're not ready yet. Stay until you are clothed with power from on high. That's a unique phrase there to Luke. The, the promise of my Father. So he's talking about the Spirit. The, there's no surprise that this phrase occurs in, in Acts 1 as well. Acts is the sequel to Luke, written by Luke. And in Acts 1, what does Jesus say that God is going to do? He's going to baptize the disciples with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who's the promise of the Father. And so listen, as you look at the early church, and you look through Acts in particular, if, if there are these particular, particularly these two realities, it just changed everything for them. 
One is, is the resurrection of Jesus, of the crucified Jesus, the death and resurrection of Christ. But the other one is what Luke describes as that baptism of the Spirit. Just as a person is baptized by immersion as we we, we celebrate together as this ordinance of the church and is plunged into the water. We're promised that we are baptized into Christ by the Spirit. That's what's happened to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Uh, our, our experience, again, doesn't look exactly like theirs, but, but we're all promised the living reality of the Spirit, the necessity of the Spirit, and the provision, the full supply of the Spirit for all of us who are in Christ. It's not some second work of grace. It's not something we, 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 we wait for in some other time in our life. But as we, the moment we become believers, we have the Spirit given to us. And the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit was this living reality for those early Christians. It should be for us. You, you took away the Holy Spirit from their lives and they would say it would just collapse. They, 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 there was no hope of doing what they needed to do, of being who, who they needed to be in that, in that context without the Spirit. It was... He was so important to them. I, I think for us, we could kind of take this for granted, but we need to be gripped by the, by the incredible supply of the Spirit, of the power we have through God's Spirit. And so this is where I want us to, to leave you today because this is the thing that makes everything else we've been talking about real to us. The resurrection is real, but we don't see the, 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 the risen physical body of Jesus with our own eyes, do we? We, we can't touch him with our hands like they could and, and watch him you know, eat a piece of broiled fish in front of us. We, we don't have that experience. We're grateful for the stories of those who did experience it that way and that, that, that's used by the Spirit to, to minister to us and to give us assurance that these things are true. But our way of experiencing them, Him is through the Spirit. Because the Spirit is the one who connects us to Jesus. The Spirit is the one who assures us that our sins are forgiven, Scriptures say, because on the cross the Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. The Spirit confirms that in our hearts. The Spirit is the one who gives light to His Word and, and sheds light and points us to Christ there in, in the Scriptures. The Spirit is the one who gives us the words and gives us the courage to speak the words uh, to others about Jesus and invite them to believe. The Spirit is the one who works in their hearts, drawing them to trust in Jesus, just as He did for us. We need Spirit. And we have the Spirit. And so this is, it should, it should, and so this is my prayer for us as a church. Church, let's not, let's not live to maintain the fortress. Let's, let's not stay huddled behind locked doors uh, as, as things deteriorate around us and we're afraid and we're unbelieving. Let's, 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 let's be transformed like these disciples were. Let's gripped by the, the reality of the resurrection, the certainty of Christ's physical resurrection, the, the certainty of our hope, future hope. Let's, let's be gripped by the necessity of the cross and keep that message, keep preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over again. Let's, let's be gripped by the urgency of the task to proclaim this, this forgiveness of sins. Let's be gripped by the supply of the Spirit and let's just keep going until Christ returns or calls us home. Let's go. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for, for the stirring, for the challenging, for the forgiving, for the comforting, for the illuminating, for the 
commissioning Savior that we meet in this passage. We thank You that, that in Your wisdom, Luke has recorded this for us for our edification, even today, sitting here a thousand years later. We ask that You, by Your Holy Spirit who dwells in us, that we would not only understand it, but that we would be transformed by it and that we would catch something of the power and of the majesty of what has been displayed before our very eyes in Jesus Christ. And that we would be your witnesses, his witnesses. From Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth, we ask this all in Jesus' name.